For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. This is a special edition of On One with Angela Rye. I am thrilled to be here with someone who I see as a mentor. She has been um, a phenomenal leader, um, both in the California State Assembly, on the ground in L.A., and now in the United States Congress. She serves as the subcommittee chair um, on foreign affairs for Africa, where I just went, and she coached me even up on my trip. And where Ms. Bass is really shining right now, um, you all, where we need her the most is around um, police violence um, and ensuring that we can actually finally realize justice through the criminal justice system and as it relates to our interactions with law enforcement. She is the lead sponsor for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which she has shepherded through the House of Representatives last Congress and this Congress, overwhelmingly so, and both times it has been stuck in the United States Senate. So with that, Ms. Bass, I just want to say thank you for being here. It is such a joy to sit with you always, and I'm so excited about this educational conversation to uplift and make sure folks on Clubhouse and everywhere they listen to On One with Angela Rye are educated on this very important issue. Well, thank you, and as always, it's great to see you, and thank you for all that you do, because really, I can't do what I do without the masses of folks pushing us, because you know, Congress can move in 10 days or 10 years. And what makes the difference is the outside pressure. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you so much. So I just want to jump right in. Um, and what I'd like to start with first, um, Ms. Bass, you know, we always have conversations that are transparent. It's a reminder that we're on the record and people can hear <laughs> you and your thoughts. But I really want you to talk about um, the current levels of frustration you have. Uh, with the United States Senate. Why hasn't this bill passed? It didn't pass last year, right after George Floyd's murder. And now we're looking at another hurdle. I know that you were like, okay, let's move right after this verdict. And they didn't get it. What is the problem? Well, actually, we are moving. It's mm -hmm. a little slow, but things are moving and moving forward. And I have a pretty strong degree of confidence that we're going to get it across the finish line this time. And I will tell you, depending on the day it is, uh, my confidence is about at 80 to 90 percent. And so wow. um, things are just moving slowly. And we would love to say that the Senate passed exactly what we passed in the House. Yeah. But Angela, you know how that is. And so, um, you know, there will be some changes made. But things are moving. And then, you know, in the Senate, you know, our big hurdle is the fact that even though we have the majority because of the vice president, we have the majority. Uh, we have to have the super majority in order to pass this bill. So the only way this bill passes is for 10 Republicans to cross over and vote for this bill. And so Senator Scott and I know everybody, you know, anyway, <laughs> Senator mm -hmm. Scott is taking the lead on the Republican side in the Senate. And then uh, Senator Cory Booker, of course, is taking the Democratic lead. So we have a bipartisan effort moving forward with the Senate still working with the House. And I think we get to the finish line this time. Right. And so I, I guess my question is, when you consider um, the fact that uh, Tim Scott, uh, also introduced his own uh, police reform bill last year, and it was 
very different from George Floyd Justice mm-hmm. and Policing Act. It was almost as right. if um, he didn't realize that this murder um, was caught on camera in nine minutes and 29 seconds, right? So what is different now and then, and how much do you expect to have to compromise based on um, Tim Scott's initial standards for what he thought a police reform package should look like? Well, I think Tim Scott has moved um, quite a bit since last year. Mm, And I think that a lot of people have because it hasn't stopped. I mean, just think about it. It's just the videos we see. What about the ones that don't exist or the body cams that are not, you know, uh, really made public? I mean, I think everybody saw during the trial the initial report that Derek Chauvin filed. He basically Mm -hmm. said, made a stop, tall black man, had a medical incident. That's it. If that youngster with the the cell phone had not taped what was going on, we would have never known about the knee to the neck. And if you think about it, since George Floyd's death, there have been over 100 officer-involved deaths, shootings, you know, Uh, and so... We know that the, that three people a day die at the hands of police. And if, not if, when the bill is signed by President Biden, then we start all over again. Because although I obviously think this bill is significant, it's a very important first step, so much more needs to be done. So I don't think it's right to ever think that when President Biden signs this, that now this is over. This has been going on for a couple hundred years. So much, much more needs to take place. When you you mentioned earlier that um, the Senate, we have the majority in the Senate because we have Vice President Kamala Harris there. That's right. Um, Talk to folks. You know, there are a lot of people who don't understand. There's like Civics 101 and then there's like Civics 205, right? (laughs) So part of (laughs) Civics 205, I would argue, is... um, you know, the filibuster, the, the the way that you have to vote on certain measures, anything that's substantive policy-wise needs 60 votes. Everybody doesn't, they're like, you're in control. What's the problem? Go. Can you explain to folks a little bit who might be confused about that standard and what, what may be in the way, in addition to some Democrats? So, <laughs> ab- ab- absolutely. But let me just say, to begin with, I can tell you the way it works, but I also can tell you is a bunch of crap. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not a great way. I can just tell you what it is. So it's wonderful to have the majority. And it is very significant because that means that, you know, Democrats chair all of the committees, all of the committees, all of the subcommittees. And essentially, the Democrats are in charge of everything that happens in the Senate, except for the way voting is done. And so in order to pass a bill, you have to have 60 votes. Right now, we have 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. When there is a vote along party lines, then the vice president, Vice President Harris, has to leave the White House, come all the way over to the Senate and cast a vote. Because technically, in addition to being the vice president, she's also the tiebreaker uh, in, in the Senate. And so that's what we have to do. And that happens with all legislation. So another bill that is critically important to our survival is the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is we need 60 votes. Now, some things can be passed on majority, very rare, like the budget. 
And uh, and Biden is trying to make it for the infrastructure package, the jobs bill to be passed uh, by majority vote. So the big issue for us is whether or not we break the filibuster so that that we don't we can just go with simple majority. But a lot of the filibuster has a very racist history because Mm -hmm. the filibuster was employed uh, essentially to stop civil rights and voting rights legislation. Right. When will we learn? So I I think that just to go back to George Floyd, justice and policing, we definitely understand that really, really difficult um, standard. I want people to understand a little bit more about this bill. Miss Bass, we've had conversations about, you know, this doesn't go far enough. What do we do? And in in an environment like the United States Senate that we have, where there are, again, are Democrats who don't think or don't think this is feasible and they can win an election. Don't they, you know, they think it goes too far. And meanwhile, we're saying, okay, well, the longer we wait, the more people who are going to die. If, you know, carotid holds were banned already, perhaps we'd still have George Floyd. This man might've run afoul of the law given his record though. And then you look at um, Breonna Taylor's killer, of course, uh, no knock warrants um, would be banned if this bill were already in law. Um, or put, put put into law. I think the other thing that I that is worth discussing is today, um, as you probably saw, the police officer who was initially fired for killing Rayshard but is now right. reinstated. That's How right. does the bill address some of these things, Ms. Bass? And what else so, do you think are the super important provisions? Sure. Well, well, thank you. Um, one of the the issues with the bill that's really important is as the federal government, we only have jurisdiction over federal police. But one of the things that happens when a federal law is passed, you have this rippling effect and other jurisdictions on the state, the county and the city tend to follow suit because, frankly, they're afraid when the federal government acts. Now, the federal government also has the purse. So the way we can impose change on a city is to say, well, if you don't do this, we won't give you federal funding so we can have some influence. But we can't tell the city of Atlanta how to run its police department. And we have 18,000 police departments around the country, 18,000 different ways of doing things. So one of the things that we can do in the bill is to create national standards for policing and lift up the profession so that it functions like any other profession. Just think about it. What other profession has the ability to take away your freedom and your life, but has no accountability or transparency? And so that these are important pieces of the bill. I, I would uh, mention a couple of other ones, uh, Angela. One, Tamir Rice, boy, 12 years old, gets mm-hmm. killed after seconds. An officer jumps out of the car and shoots and kills him. And uh, it turns out he had just been fired for being violent in another jurisdiction mm-hmm. in another city. So when you see these officers like the one that killed Dante Wright, the officer quit, right? There's nothing to to block her from going to the next town and getting hired. And Derek Chauvin, if he doesn't go to prison, do you realize he could be back on the force because he could do what the um, officer did in in Atlanta, appeal using his using his union. So those are some of the other provisions. One provision in the bill that I'm particularly excited about is the provision that provides grants to communities to re-envision public safety. Mm-hmm. It's time for people to say, what do I need in Los Angeles to feel safe? 
as long as police departments measure of success is their number of arrests. Well, <laughs> and where do you go to, to do arrests? You don't go to Beverly Hills. You go to where right. it's easy to arrest people. So we need to rethink this whole thing in our country. But while we're undergoing massive change, we got to get done what we can get done now. And that's the basis for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I would never argue that it goes far enough. Mm. Do you think that um, after implementing this bill, this bill signed into law, do you think that there will be an opportunity to do additional police reform to the point of, you know, I don't think it goes far enough. We can push again. What do you think about the likelihood of that? I think we have to do that the day after it's signed. We can't wait wow. for implementation. Mm-hmm. And and then and then frankly about implementation, hey, the only way any law gets gets implemented, laws that impact us, laws that impact communities of color, lower income communities, is you gotta do the public pressure to make sure it's implemented. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that the police, the federal police in your area are following the law. So it's not like everybody just sits up straight and says, new law, let me just change everything I was doing. We got to keep pressure on before, during, and after. We um, see in the bill, one of the things that I think is really important and not discussed enough is this, um, the federal criminal statute to prosecute police officers. Um, Congressman Bass, when I was ED of of the caucus, I remember the anguish that Attorney General Holder experienced, um, you know, just trying to hold these officers accountable. The standard is so high, and, and the law, we call it the mens rea, it's the criminal intent standard. It's willful in Section 242, and you have um, a provision in this bill that would amend that standard to reckless. How, has that, how have those conversations gone in the Senate? This is something that would make it a lot easier for federal prosecutors to try cases against police officers that violate our rights, that kill us, that injure us in some way. How have those conversations been? That's Angela Rye, the attorney speaking. I think a lot of people don't know Angela Rye is an attorney. I do. <laughs> you have well, me studying this I bill backwards and forwards, okay? I, can, I can't mess up. I cannot mess up. <laughs> well, um, I, to be honest with you, I actually am more concerned about that provision than I am qualified immunity. I mean, everybody talks about qualified immunity, which yes. is your ability to sue uh, an officer. But, you know, I want these folks off the street. I, yes. I want them prosecuted. And so um, those discussions, I, I would say, are, are is those two are the most difficult discussions that we're having. And, um, and if you think about it just for your, uh, for your audience, um, we would have to prove that Derek Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd. It was in his mind. He was planning to. I don't care what was in his mind. That's what he did. So if you run out and, and run through a stop sign at 50 miles an hour and it's supposed to only be 25 and you mow down a bunch of people, well, we want to know what was in your mind and whether you attended to, but you're going to go to jail regardless because that's reckless. Right. And right. so you have the standards so high, that, and that's why communities get so upset, and, and we view it as, well, that's just racist. Well, yeah, but it's actually institutional racism yes. in the sense that it's not just that the people in this city 
decided not to prosecute somebody. Well, it is. But I mean, they have the law to provide an excuse for it. So it's an example of how if we're going to address some of the root causes of racism, we have to look at the institutions that perpetuate it and why they do and change those structures. So that's the reason why we want to lower the standard in which to prosecute an officer. When you um, think about, so this is another provision that I am fascinated by because I know how triggering the images are for me when I see it on the screen. You know, when you see um, protesters standing in front of police officers with a sign that says Black Lives Matter and holds the name of Eric Garner or Rashard Brooks or Micaiah Bryant. And on the other side of, of that protester is a law enforcement officer with a shield, a bat a, you know, a face mask, like all of these uh, pieces of equipment that look like they came from the military, Miss Bass, right. probably because they did. So there's another provision right. in the bill that would um, limit what the Pentagon can transfer to local police departments. How important is that provision to you? Well, I think it's very important. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to struggle to understand why a local police department needs a rocket launcher. Yeah. <laughs> or grenades. <laughs> and then, you know what I often say, because as Angela mentioned, you know, I focus on foreign policy in Africa. And when we see other countries and we see the militarization of their police departments, we are ready to talk about human rights and all these other issues. But our police departments have more and more looked like the military. This is actually something that started after 9-11. And so uh, it is a part of what we are looking at. I will tell you, though, I've learned along the way in some jurisdictions, some of the things that make no sense in L.A. might be needed in an area that has hurricanes and has natural disasters on an annual basis where they need vehicles that can move in and out of water. I never thought about that, you know, before. So um, so that is a very important provision uh, in the bill. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, actually, I hadn't considered that either. Maybe we could just put something in there that says not for protests. <laughs> like, don't use exactly. it for protesters. Right. Um, but, but, you know, Angela, let me just mention something. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting on our side that over all of these years that we've been struggling with this, we've never framed it as a human rights issue. Yes. And it is a human rights issue. Yeah. If what was going on in our country happened in another country, which of course it does, mm -hmm. we are the first at the microphone to talk about human rights abuses. We need to sanction that government. We need to hit them with international shame. And the world is looking at us going, excuse me, how many people a day die at the hands of police? And you want to talk about us? And then I know I've had to pull a couple of ambassadors in my office mm -hmm. to tell them about different cases and to say, well, you know, we we are really encouraging you to have an independent investigation and we want to know the results of that investigation. And I have to catch myself <laughs> and then I have to acknowledge, well, we hope the investigation in the George Floyd case comes out right, too. In other words, I have to acknowledge the very thing that is going yes. on here is what we penalize other countries to do. So we need to think about in the community framing this as human rights, because then it puts it in the international space and says we're a part of the world. But we act as though in the United States, there are no human rights issues. 
That's only what happens in other countries. Well, and we probably act like that because it depends on who we deem as human, which we know is a foundational problem to this country, right? Um, You have a a provision in here that that deals with um, law enforcement training. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that I've really been wrestling with um, lately, I've been reading this book that I've talked about almost on every segment I've been on air for, um, called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minikim, who actually mm-hmm. helped to train some Minneapolis Police Department folks. Um, I think Derek Chauvin must have been sick that day. I need to ask Resma, but I'm sure he didn't go to the training. Um, and, and one of the things that I'm really wrestling with, just from an earnest standpoint, not trying to you know engage in any talking points, but just really curious. How much do we believe um, that you can train inherent fear out of people? Resma addresses what he calls white body supremacy, black body trauma, police body trauma. Anybody Mm -hmm. goes into the force automatically kind of inherits this trauma. And his uh, point is really uh, um, trying to force us to engage in trauma therapy, somatic therapy, dealing with what we carry in our bodies. How do we feel when we go into these different spaces, when a law enforcement officer gets out of a car, sees a black person, what are, what are the feelings that come up? Mm-hmm. Can you train mm-hmm. that inherent fear out of people? Or is it time for us to also look at other ways to help law enforcement cope with trauma? Well, you know, you raise a, uh, I, I want to answer it in, in the broader uh, sense, because yeah. even though obviously I'm promoting the bill, and promoting training. Uh, let me just tell you the one thing that I want to deal with the day after Biden signs it. What the heck are we even talking about? I mean, training, who's training? Has the training been evaluated? What's the nature of the training? Yeah. You know, so, so I question it beyond what you were saying. I question, and again, I'm supportive of it. I want it to happen. I know it's critical, but then I want to not just leave it at that. Tell me who the trainers are. Yeah. You know, what are their credentials? You know, what are they bringing, you know, what are they bringing into it? So I, I it's definitely not something that I'm taking lightly at all. Mm-hmm. I, um, I also want to talk briefly about, you kind of hit, hit, hinted at this earlier when you talked about where officers go to arrest. And so there's also a provision that works to end racial and religious profiling. Part of that Mm -hmm. racial profiling is kind of that inherent intersection around um, who's poor. Um, When you consider this racial profiling language um, and the fact that we have so many deniers of racial profiling, both on the House and the Senate side, um, how difficult has it been negotiating with people and talking about this part of the bill? Honestly, that has not been difficult. Uh, that has not. As a matter wow. of fact, that just hasn't even come up. And uh, and only the areas of major controversy come up. However, just like the issue of training, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, you got to get the officers to collect the data and you know that that's not something they jump to do to begin with. Something that's not in the bill that I think needs to be considered is um, fundraising. So remember how we all learned in Ferguson, how the Ferguson Police Department was told by the city council, we have a $10 million budget gap, go out and raise the money. 
people, where do they raise the money from? I mean, it turned out like, I don't remember the percentage, but some amazing percentage of black people in Ferguson had warrants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like going to jail for a while was just part of what you were going to do. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. And so the idea that there might be police officers in small towns that are fundraising or using asset forfeiture, that's another one. You know, I mean, I'm going to take your house or I'm going to take your car and, um, you know, we need some undercover vehicles. Thank you. <laughs> Get out of your car. I don't know. That's called GTA, Grand Theft Auto, I thought. Mm-hmm. No, it's called asset <laughs> forfeiture. So I think we need to look at all of that. So, you know, just just in terms of legislation, as I mentioned before, getting a bill done and signed is a very important first step. Obviously, you can't move forward unless it's signed. But once it's signed, that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now we have to sit down and say, okay, how is this going to be implemented? And how are we going to monitor it? How are we going to measure it? How are we going to know whether or not this actually produced the change that we wanted? The bottom line is we do know the system needs to be overhauled. And uh, we need to raise the question in all of our communities. What do we need to be safe? Yeah. What do we need to be safe, Ms. Bass? That's a great question. What is the answer to that? What do we well, need? I mean, the, the, what we need is we need communities that are fully supported. So, for example, you want to talk about defund. I mean, that's exactly what we did. We defunded mental health. We defunded education. We defunded economic supports. Yeah. And then when when things started falling through the cracks, we expected the police to come and clean it up. And so yes. one of the I think we have to refund the communities. And and if you want to make the community safe, make sure people have jobs. Make sure people when they get out of prison that they're able to get their driver's license, that they're able to get a job, that they have a place to live. All of this crazy stuff we did when we decided that we hated people that you know were involved in drugs and all. We penalized them. We sent them to prison. And we and then and now we're beginning to question that and we're releasing them, which worries me a lot, because when you release them, you're sending them back to the same zip codes Mm -hmm. and they're concentrated in that zip code and you strip them of the ability to function as a free person. So then surprise, surprise, you have crime increase in that area. You've Mm -hmm. set the stage for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think sometimes we don't think things through. That's my fear right now, Angela, with the fact that in California, for example, we're getting ready to release tens of thousands of people. On the one hand, I think that's good. On the other hand, it really worries me because we're releasing them into what? Right. We're the infrastructure to deal with that. Exactly. You, you have um, uh, the new attorney general, Mary Garland, who's just announced. Yes. Um, a pattern and practice investigation into Minneapolis Police Department. Um, uh, and and there also is in this bill um, a grant program for state attorneys general to be able to do the same type of independent investigations that for all the reasons we know can't trust um, localities to do mm-hmm. some of these investigations themselves and actually to reach just conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that important? Why is it important for state attorneys general to be able to conduct these pattern and practice investigations? Well, it is in theory. Depends on your state. Depends on your <laughs> attorney general. Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff, I hope people understand the connection to elections. 
Mm. Attorney generals are elected. When we elect people to office, we need to pay attention to what they're saying they're going to do. District attorneys are elected. One of the reasons for that provision in the bill is because district attorneys have a too close of a relationship with local police departments. Mm -hmm. And so you can't really expect them to go after and penalize a police officer and then the next day ask that police officer or another police officer to be a witness for you in a case. And so you have a situation where the DI, I mean, it's kind of like a structural conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So the part of the bill that has that in there is to address that structural conflict of interest, right? And I think that's good. However, if you have a rotten attorney general, mm -hmm. you just pass the ball. So yeah. when we think about elections, you know, we all love the presidential election, but all of these local elections, who you elect as your district attorney, who you elect as your attorney general, all of it is interconnected and all of it is important. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, a structural conflict of interest. One of those um, structural conflicts of interest are the, um, the folks who, um, including members of Congress, who take campaign contributions from police unions. And so no wonder they've made qualified immunity a thing. How important is it, Ms. Bass, to get rid of uh, police unions' ability to contribute to any campaign, whether it's the prosecutor or the member of Congress that would advocate against the interests of the American people this way. And so just like the NRA mm -hmm. or just like any other industry, it really not so much about the contribution because we have contribution limits. It's more about the extra money that comes in in the form of an independent expenditure. So let me just give you an example. I'm running for Congress and the police union gives me $2,500. Okay, that's fine. A thousand other people gave me $2,500 too. This sounds nice, I wish I would, anyway. Uh, but then the police union comes in and spends half a million in support of me. That's the deal. It's not the individual contribution. And so I think that what has happened with police unions, and I'm sure that they're not all the same. I'm talking to a police union right now that is really trying to embrace some reforms, but the pro that's the problem. The, the other problem that I think is even more significant than that is the fact that the police unions have gone to states around the country and changed state law. They've also put provisions in their contracts that make them you know, completely unapproachable. I think those two things, the state and their local influence in the legislative process, is probably even more significant than that $500,000 independent expenditure on behalf or against someone. And, um, and, and so qualified immunity is a provision in a bill that basically what would it exist right now? And it's not a law. It's a messy court decision that the exactly. Supreme Court keeps refusing to clean up. And so consequently, it's interpreted differently all the time. So let me give you some wild examples. Mm -hmm. uh, with qualified immunity, in order for the officer to be stripped of his or her immunity, you have to find another officer in another area that did the exact same thing. Exactly. So George, so Derek Chauvin had his knee to George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 39 seconds. A few weeks after, there was a young Latino guy who was killed in Northern California. 
that officer had his knee on the young man's neck for five minutes. The officer gets immunity because it wasn't nine minutes and 39 seconds. Mm -hmm. There's a case where police officers stole $250,000 from drug dealers. They stole it. They were able to get immunity because they couldn't find another case where officers had stole that exact amount of money. Now that's craziness. So first of all, that needs to be eliminated, but the Mm -hmm. public needs to be able to recover damages. Now, unfortunately, what you hear about in the news are spectacular results, like George Floyd's family got $20 million. But you can only imagine how many cases are filed on a given month. And the majority of them go nowhere because the officer is able to claim immunity. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be taken away. I mean, just think about it if your doctor could claim immunity, no matter what your doctor did to you. (laughs) this is the profession that can take away your freedom and your life. A doctor can take away your life by making mistakes. Do you think if that doctor took away your life or a life of your family member that, that he or she could go in and say, well, I need immunity because I'm a doctor. That's why Derek Chauvin was looking at the camera. I mean, I don't know what was in his mind, but I mean, he wasn't worried, right? Right. He wasn't worried. He wasn't stressed. If anything, he was indignant. Yeah. And to to your point, Ms. Bash, for those who are listening and may not be as familiar with the bill or the law, you're talking about um, Section 1983, which actually comes from the Ku Klux Klan Act and is supposed to be designed to protect our civil rights. So this is not a a qualified immunity doctrine that applies to criminal law. It is for civil law. Um, You did um, mention that there is, uh, you know, in in civil cases, but I just want to double down on that really quickly. The other thing I wanted to raise with you is um, Susan Rice, who now serves as the um, the uh, advisor domestic over the policy. Domestic Policy Council, um, just said recently that they 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 intended to, and by they I'm talking about the Biden in- administration intended to stand up a commission. Um, I think in my mind, when I think of the commission, I think very similar to the task force Barack Obama stood up um, for the 21st Century Council on Policing. And they ended up saying, we're going to stand down from this. We want people to focus on passing this bill, to focus on passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Why is that important to get that type of support um, from the administration at this point? Well, um, yes, Ambassador Rice has and the administration have just been wonderful. I mean, they've been very, very supportive. Um, a commission prematurely would have pulled the thunder out of us trying to do the bill. Uh, I actually support the idea of a commission after the bill is passed. However, if a commission is formed, I think it should do two things. Number one, I think it should look at the recommendations that were made from the 21st century uh, commission that President Obama did. And that was several years ago now. I think a look back would be good to say, did anybody move on these around the country? Certainly we didn't on a federal level. Uh, what, are, what are best practices that, that are emerging? And how do we make sure that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is implemented? And where else do we need to go? I think those are important questions. I hope they do move forward with the commission, but I'm very grateful that they waited. I, I think we would not have been able to do the bill in the same way because everybody would have just said, well, let's see what the commission 
says, how many commissions do we need? I mean, I think the 21st Century Task Force did a great job, but that was several years ago. Now, one of the things that people need to understand, because oftentimes we don't acknowledge when we do succeed. Let me just tell you, if anybody is watching this, we're in the streets over the last year. The only reason we're talking about any of this is because of what happened in the streets. The hundreds of thousands of people that marched in every state in the country, marched in many countries around the world. Um, Angela, I think I mentioned this to you before, all 54 countries on the continent of Africa waged a protest at the United Nations in behalf of Black people in the United States and what we've been going through. And so um, that type of pressure is what brought about change. So now we're talking about this law, but since George Floyd's torture and murder, there have been laws that have changed all over the country, in cities, yeah. in counties, in sure. states, and, and the people who are on the streets who feel that nothing changes need to understand they brought about change. We're yeah. just trying to move the ball further, but change has happened. And I think somebody, it would be great if somebody compiled all of that and looked mm -hmm. at all of the laws that have been changed since. Now, obviously we keep getting gill and obviously more and more needs to be done, but we do need to celebrate what we did accomplish. Because a lot of times when people are in the streets and they protest and they see someone else getting murdered, they think that nothing came out what they did. And it's not yeah. true. I love that you said that. I um, Before we uh, get ready to open up for a few questions, um, again, this is our very first on one live podcast on Clubhouse. Um, you will also be able to see this podcast and hear it everywhere where po uh, podcasts are available. Miss um, Bass, to this point around um, how much folks on the ground protested and made a difference, um, folks often, often talk about Gianna Taylor's I'm sorry, Gianna uh, Floyd's. Why did I say Taylor? Oh, I was thinking about Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor. Gianna right. got it. Oh, so many. It's so sad. Um, it Gianna Floyd talking about her father, that her father was going to change the world, and he's already done that. I want to know what you say to the families. There are families out here who are struggling, the ones who had hashtags for their loved ones and those who did not, um, those who are frustrated with the movement. Um, because of things both real and just imagined. Um, and then there are folks who are frustrated that, yes, this bill has passed the House of Representatives twice under your leadership. And even though you're 80 to 90 percent certain that the Senate will move, they haven't yet. What can right. you say to the families to provide them with some hope um, that this will happen and you will keep fighting? Well, um, I just have to express my own commitment to them that I'm not gonna stop until this is done. Um, these are issues I've worked on for decades. And, um, and I know what it's like to get that phone call and experience that loss personally. And, um, and so I just tried to share with them my commitment and also to encourage them that they're, um, they're coming on the Hill, they're talking to members, all of that does make a, a huge difference. And, um, and so, you know, we are talking now and they were on the Senate, um, several families were uh, on the Senate floor last week, meeting with Tim Scott, meeting with Lindsey Graham, 
And, um, and I, I think it's very important for them to know the power of their presence. Absolutely. I'm really honored that I was a part of your first show. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Myron Clubhouse, for those of you who do not know, you can reach the U.S. Senate by calling 202-224-3121. And Ms. Bass said, don't call the House. We passed it twice. Call the Thank Senate. You. They have work to do. Thank you so much, Ms. Bass. We so appreciate you for being here today. Uh, likewise. <laughs> Okay, much love. Talk to you soon. You all have a great evening. Thank you for joining us.